how many times have you driven by and you see all this equipment or you see these big cranes or you see all this dirt being moved and you're like, oh my God, what's happening in my neighborhood? What's going on here, right? Well, I'm going to go out there and showcase that development and let you know what's going on. So I'll go out there, I'll fly my drone, I'll get the information and I, what I'll do is I'll tell you, hey, this is what's being built. This is who's building it. This is why they're building it. This is the team behind it. This is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to help the community. This is what it's going to do for the region, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm actually going to show you what that hole in the ground is going to look like and what's going to come out of it and who's doing it and why. And it's going to be pretty much a development spotlight. And they're just quick videos, three minutes max for now. And just giving you a quick overview of what's happening in your neighborhood and what's being built. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Ahmed, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Fantastic. How about you? I'm doing well. It's another cloudy day in Southern California. You don't get too many of those, though, do you? No, but I appreciate them. Trust me. Yeah. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Favorite ice cream is probably anything with caramel in it now. Yes. Used to be used to be mint chip, but I think I've matured into anything with caramel. So my ice creams go in seasons and I am definitely on a caramel phase right now. Anything with caramel, I agree. Because it's very sophisticated, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now you're in the Inland Empire in California there. If we're in that area, do you have a favorite ice cream shop that you could recommend? Ice cream shop, not really. You know, there's nothing really that sticks out. There is one place called Handles, which is a local, you know, home mom and pop run uh, establishment with a couple locations that make everything, you know, in-house. But beyond that, there's nothing really craft or that sticks out in any way whatsoever. I don't know. Making ice cream in-house is uh, pretty niche there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Well, I'm a uh, Southern California-based real estate investor and developer. I focus on large-scale multifamily investments and developments, as well as small to medium-sized industrial warehouse logistical type buildings. Got it. Got it. Well, where did your real estate journey begin? You know, back just over 20 years ago, I graduated college and I was going to continue working in the family business, pumping gas at my dad's gas station. You know, that didn't work out. I kind of had a falling out at the time and I went out and looked for a career. And a professor of mine who had a real estate investment development company suggested, you know, commercial real estate. He said, you'd be good at it. You enjoy it. I went in that direction and I got a job working for a company called CB, which is uh, CB Richard Ellis back in the day, big, large uh, commercial brokerage firm doing industrial and office representation out here in Southern California. Did that for a few years, left the company, went out on my own, did that for a little bit longer. And then a few years after that, I started working for a friend uh, with the aspect of taking over his company and his business because he wanted out and he was doing large-scale public contracting, meaning building high schools, colleges, universities, anything that had public money related to it, he was a contractor. So I was a part of many teams, many large developments, many large construction projects, things that were $500,000 in nature, up to $150 million in nature in terms of a construction project. So I really got a lot of construction experience. And then along the way, you know, just working with the family, investing and developing along the way. And now I've taken it full circle and I'm now pursuing investment and development full time 
as a career, as a company, as a family office. Well, before we get into the development piece, take me back to CBRE, because I think you might be the first person I've had on the show that's worked at a major firm like that. What is that like? Were you in sales? And if so, were you targeting investors, properties, owners? What, what did that look like? So after my initial training with a couple of different specialties within the company, you know, they put me in asset valuation, they put me in property management, they put me in appraisals, they put me in the industrial and office sales and leasing. After I'd done my training with them for a year, I went full-time into the industrial type product category, meaning I was an industrial broker. So all those big warehouses that you see throughout Southern California, I was representing tenants, buyers, sellers, uh, developers, and everything in between. So my focus was industrial buildings, these big concrete boxes that you see everywhere. And it was pretty much almost like a boiler room where you were constantly, constantly cold calling, cold calling, cold calling, whether it's on the phone or door to door, you know, with your business card and a flyer back in the day. They didn't have the social media marketing and the advertising and the direct mail campaigns and the uh, email campaigns they have now. It was either you were on the phone or you were going door to door, knocking on a door with a flyer and a business card looking for business. Gotcha. What did you think about that role? It sounds tough. I would just put it that way. It was tough. It really was. You know, I think I excelled at certain aspects of it because of certain skill sets I had. So I was really good at finding an opportunity or seeing an opportunity or finding a deal, right? Like I was really good at rainmaking. I wasn't the best closer, even though I can close a deal, I wasn't the best. My biggest skill set or my superpower was finding those opportunities and bring them into the company. So then me and other partners in the group or in the company could go and close those deals. So it was a lot of work, but you know, you start refining your skill set and you're able to like double down on what you're good at and then go after it. And then do they segment it out by niche? So you were just with industrial or could you call on multifamily as well and retail, et cetera? They really wanted you to follow your niche, right? Because you would be a mile wide and an inch deep if you're doing that, right? Because you'd be going after all these different types of tenants. Like if I ever had a deal that would come into me through a referral or a a friend or a, a contact that wasn't in my specialty, meaning industrial and some office work, I would refer it out to another broker in the office. Like, hey, this is a retail deal. It came through my network. I'm going to refer to you, or this is a multifamily opportunity. It came through my network. I'm going to refer to you. Now, you know, if you're able to close the transaction, get a deal, send me a referral my way. That's kind of what it was, but they wanted you to specialize in your product type. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then you move over into the government buildings. We'll call them schools. I think I I heard that correctly. Um, How did that, were you all doing that across the country? What did that business look like? No, that was mostly here in Southern California. And what it was is after I left CB and I was broken for a while on my own, and I still do to this day, I still, you know, receive a lot of business and I refer it out to people, is we were a contractor and subcontractor working on a lot of these public projects. So whether it was a culinary school or a office building for the district or a new high school or maybe a remodel of an existing school or city hall or something like that. We would go out and bid these contracts or these opportunities through the bid system because we were a public, a union contractor, because these types of government type opportunities had to go to contractors that were either union or they paid a prevailing wage. And we were a union contractor, meaning all our labor was union. So we would go after all these public type opportunities. 
Gotcha. And then that helps separate you from any other bid that was out there because you kind of fit in their box that they were looking yeah, for. We're, yeah, we're a union contractor or your prevailing wage. And a lot of private contractors did not want to pursue that type of business. They didn't want to deal with the payroll uh, requirements, the reporting requirements, the other requirements necessary to go after public work. A lot of them didn't want to do that. So they stuck to private work or private jobs. Why this company and other companies like ours went after the public work. So how did you make that mindset shift from, it sounds like one was more transactional and based, right? You're going out there, you're hunting, but you're eating what you kill. When the deal closes, you're going to essentially get paid. And then now you're moving over into a bid process where it's a long development process. And once you close a bid, you still probably have to complete the project before you start dripping in cash flow. I would assume. You know, as a contractor, you got paid along the way, right? So if you were to win the bid, you would start putting together your materials and your teams and your schedules and stuff like that. And you would actually start billing along the way, meaning, hey, I showed up on the job. I brought all my equipment. I brought all my tools. I brought all my stuff. Here's the first set of billings that you need to pay me. And then every two weeks, I would submit billing again. Hey, we completed more. We brought more material. We brought more equipment. We've completed more of the project. Please pay us again. So we would get paid along the way, right? Meaning it wasn't like you had to wait to the end of the job or anything like that. And what they did was they did something called performance billing, billing, where they would actually go and double check your performance of that contract. Meaning, hey, I'm billing for 16% of the job right now because I feel like I've completed 16% of the work. They would go out and double check that to make sure that you weren't overbilling them or you weren't trying to do anything wrong. And I think it's a really good process or a, or a skill set or what do you, you call it to have for any type of real estate project is performance billing. Whether a contractor, you trust them or not, if they're asking for 16% of the contract, you need to go and double check that before you pay them. Yeah. I don't think I've talked about it on the show very often, but my dad is a steel building contractor where essentially it's that, right? He's out there bidding on projects. If he wins a project, then he finds a team, he puts it together and they start building. And I remember very early on in my life, I think I was an early high school where he had that moment of clarity shift around like, oh, I need to be getting paid along the way. How did you like, what does that look like? Did you have specific metrics that you're hitting along the way or is it a job by job basis? No, it's just job by job. And it wouldn't be any sort of specific matrix, but it would be like when you do your budgeting and you do your analysis and stuff along the line, like, hey, if I'm billing for 16% of the work, I know that in that 16% of the bill or the of the invoice that I give, submit to them or whatever you call it, is I know there's 16% of labor. I know there's 16% of material. I know there's 16% of my office and my administrative staff in there. I know there's 16% of the profit already built into that. I know there's 16% of my overhead is already built into it as well. I mean, you're not just getting reimbursed for 16% of the work. You're getting paid for 16% of that contract, including your profits and your overhead. So you have to make sure that when you do your budgeting and your billing and, and, and forecasting all this, that all this is included along the way, because you don't want to bill and receive a check and it only covers your labor, it only covers your materials. And you're like, well, I got an office, I got rent, I got trucks, I got insurance, I got gas, I got all, I got an office staff, I got all these other things that I need to pay for, but it wasn't a part of that billing. So that's something you have to like get a little bit more technical about. And a lot of guys, you know, this is why a lot of contractors struggle because of the inability to understand the billing process. 
Yeah. What does your tech stack look like for that? Are you running all this out of like an Excel spreadsheet or do you have some sort of specialized tools that you use or technology that you use to help? Well, now there, there's a lot of, you know, I'm not in the business anymore, but now there is a lot of uh, technology and, and apps and, and software. You can do things like that, where you can actually put in your budget, put in your performance, put in the, the costs that you've occurred, and then it will forecast and it will budget for you. There are different ways of doing that. But when I was doing it, you know, years back, I was just, you know, we're doing it on a spreadsheet, meaning, hey, yeah. this is where we are. These are our costs. These are the percentages. This is what we need to add in. And this is going to give us the total amount that we need to build for the or the minimum amount we need to receive to stay to keep the doors open until we get paid off at the end. Yeah. And let's hope we don't miss a decimal point along the way. Yeah, no, it, it's happened for sure. <laughs> it happened. So take us to what you do now. So you mentioned you you're looking for uh, industrial space and larger multifamily land to go develop. Talk us through a little bit about that process. Yeah. So now, you know, I've come full circle and I am focusing 100% of my time on investing and developing, right? Was doing that along the way for the last 20 years, but this is now going full time, 100% into that business. And what I do is I focus on investing in multifamily property existing, which is 100 units plus in about half a dozen or so states across the country that I've identified as being states that I want to be in or, or areas or metropolitan areas that are that fit my metrics, as well as developing multifamily property, 100 plus units across the country in certain areas that I've also identified. I currently have two projects that are about 300 units apiece. One is going through plan revisions. Another one is actually we're moving dirt on it right now out, out in uh, North Dallas. So, and along the way, I also look for small industrial property, meaning industrial development opportunities one to three acres, you know, these small infill pieces that a lot of the larger developers pass up on, and it's too small for them to fit into their buy box. But it's perfect for me because I can go buy one, two or three acres, pay all cash, and then develop a building or multiple buildings on that property and sell it and then roll that money into the larger multifamily developments and the multifamily investments that I am pursuing right now. Got it. Do you care to name the six states that you are looking in right now? You mentioned about a half a dozen states. So California is on there, not because I've identified it, but because I'm here and it's pretty much my backyard. It's not exactly an easy place to do business, but I'm here. I was born and raised. I know the area. So we got California, we got Arizona, we got Texas, we got Georgia, and we got Tennessee and possibly Florida and Nevada as well. Gotcha. It's uh, the sunshine states or the smile states that they talk about a lot. Yeah, it you know a lot of people do it for the business aspects of it because of the of the weather or because of the long term. I do it is because it's very a similar climate and very similar demographics to where I am in here in Southern California. Meaning, hey, I get sun, I get uh, certain types of income, I get certain types of tenants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very similar market or very similar geographic that I'm already used to because of being born and raised here in Southern California. Gotcha. I'm not going up to upstate New York or I'm not going to Minnesota because I don't understand those markets, whether it's the climate or the business aspects of it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, how are you finding, you mentioned a couple acres, infilled lots. How are you finding those today? Are you going through traditional brokers or do you have feet on the street? What does all that look like? A little bit of everything. I do have brokers that bring me opportunities. I do find a few of them myself. Like I said before, you know, one of my superpowers or one of my strengths was being able to spot an opportunity, right? And I am constantly driving. I am constantly taking a different road. I'm constantly keeping my 
my eyes open for these things that, you know, most people may skip or pass up on, but I find it as an opportunity. For example, I've just closed escrow on a second parcel and I'm going to go into escrow on a third parcel here in the Inland Empire. And these parcels are really small parcels that most developers or investors would pass up on. But I saw them as an opportunity saying, if I can assemble all three of those parcels, all four of those parcels, then I can actually have one large parcel that would be a really great development opportunity. So I'm able to stretch along that escrow for 12 months because I'm assembling three or four different parcels. I'm dealing with five, six, seven different buyers. I'm able to be flexible, unlike some of the larger companies and the larger developers who are, shall we say, less flexible and they have to follow a certain procedure. I'm able to bob and weave when the troubles or the situations demand it. Yeah. Now, I would think in your (laughs) own backyard, where you know some of the political climate, you might know some of the zoning and regulations and things like that, it would be pretty easy to kind of navigate through those or easier to navigate through those situations. But when you start reaching into other states, I would imagine there's some difficulty there. Can you talk us through, like if you're developing in the Inland Empire and then all of a sudden you get to Georgia, some of the differences in how you go through the zoning process or get plans approved and things like that? You know, to be completely honest with you, it's actually a lot easier in in a lot of other states in California. I was thinking if you could do it in California, you could probably do it just about anywhere else. And, you know, all this gray is is pretty much from (laughs) technically planning department and planning commissions. That's where all this comes from. You know, California is so I don't know what what the word for it would be. It it would be Rigid. rigid or not really business friendly or contrary to what they say, they're like, yeah, we're business friendly. We got a a lot of people living here. We need to provide a lot of housing. We really need to do something. But when I show up and I say, I want to be a part of that, I want to build some apartments. I want to build some townhomes. I want to build something. They make the process really difficult because, you know, unfortunately, California has adopted a policy where, hey, we're going to let everyone have a say. We're going to let everyone have an opinion. We're going to let everyone put their two cents in. And they may know nothing about real estate development, planning, construction, demographics, needs, forecasting, finance. They have no idea, but they allow everyone to be a part of that. And when they allow everyone to be a part of that, it completely muddies the whole process and it stretches and stretches and stretches. In other states, such as Texas that we're doing right now, they understand like, hey, we need housing. We need opportunities. We need this in our area. We're going to help you process this. We're not going to let everybody have a say and everyone slow down the process and everyone raising an objection or a comment or something like that. We're going to actually help you through the process to get this done quicker because we really understand that this is needed. You know, I had one project and we had a community meeting where we invited the community out to give their two cents. Right. It was part of the, the rules. You had to do that. You had to have the community meeting. The community showed up. They didn't really say anything about the project, but everybody wanted to come and gripe. They said, oh, what about the homeless? What about the traffic? What about the signals? What about the potholes? What about this? This is everything that didn't apply to my project. People were out complaining and griping about. So it just kind of sets the stage for doing business here in California. They allow everyone to have a say whether they're related to the project or not. And then they take all that into their accountability and it just it muddies the waters and it slows things down tremendously. And then when you have people in the planning department or the city councils or anything of authority and they don't understand real estate or development or forecasting or demographics, but they are in positions to make decisions, 
you can see that a lot of those decisions slow down because they don't really understand the process. I mean, the right people are not in the right jobs. And that's unfortunate, but that's kind of where things are sometimes. So how do you as a developer navigate through that? I mean, there are two separate challenges, right? There's one, the community aspect of it. And then two, it's educating the lawmakers on what's needed and why, et cetera. How do you navigate through those situations? You know, it's a lot, like you said, it's a lot of navigating and a lot of educating, right? It's like when I come with a project or when I come with an opportunity or development, I need to make sure all those questions are already answered, right? I need to make sure that any sort of objection has already been attended to. I need to make sure that no matter what someone says, I've already had it covered. So, for example, one of my projects, 300 unit apartment complex, I'm redesigning right now just because of a change in the market and the demographic. But that project will bring in additional traffic. It'll bring in additional this, it'll bring in additional that. So what happens is I make sure that's already mitigated by the time it gets there. They're like, well, it's going to bring in a lot of traffic. And I'm like, well, not really, because I've already done a traffic study and we're going to make these changes to the street and we're going to write additional driveways so people can get in and get out easier so it doesn't cause any traffic problems. And they're going to be like, oh, well, this big project is going to be so bright and the neighborhood is going to be you know, complaining because there's so much light. I'm like, no, we already did a photometric study saying that the where we're placing the lights on this project will not bleed into the surrounding neighborhood and bother other people. So meaning you got to make sure that you are bringing something that is needed to the community, needed to the area, but you have to have all those questions answered in advance because everyone is going to answer ask questions and they won't have answers, but you need to have those answers. And the sooner you have those answers and the sooner you're prepared, your project's going to move along a lot easier. So I'm going to show my ignorance in this. And to be transparent, I've never developed a multifamily unit project or anything like that, just so we're on the same page. But is there a centralized turnkey service out there that comes and does traffic studies, photonic studies, light studies, all this kind of stuff? Or is that like each individual consultant that you're going down the list to find? You know, you can do it in different ways, right? You know, you can go as a developer, you're essentially the project manager, right? Or you may have a project manager in-house and it's their job to take all these individual pieces that are needed for the submittal process and put it together and, and submit it. Now, a lot of times your architect or your engineer could take the lead on these things and, and you can like actually include that in the contract saying, okay, Mr. Architect, Mr. Engineer, you are the lead on this project. I'm going to request that you do all the studies, you manage all the third-party reports, and you bring everything to the table that is required for full submittal, and I'll just pay you as a part of your contract to do that, or I can do that myself, right? So you can go two different ways about it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Depending Um, on how much time and effort you want to put into it, you know? Yeah. 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 The 300 units you're building in uh, Dallas, North Dallas, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Is it an A class? Is it a B class? Any sorts of mixed uses in it? Talk to us a little bit about that. No, this is a great project. I'm actually really excited because we're already moving dirt on it. And I've only bought the project uh, or bought the land earlier, early 2023. I think we closed escrow. I'm sorry, early 2022. I think we closed escrow like 10 months ago. Right. And so what this was, a friend of mine who I met through my real estate groups and stuff like that called me and said, hey, I have this opportunity for a development. Would you be interested in that? And took a look at it. I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's partner up. Let's make it happen. Executed the contract, bought the land, and now are pursuing all the approvals. We have already received the entitlements, meaning we've already received the permission to actually go and build 
the product. All we're doing right now is doing the construction documents and getting those approved. And once those are approved, we can go put a shovel in the ground. And that project is in North Dallas in a city called Anna, which is just north of McKinney, Frisco, McKinney. And then after that, you go up a little bit north to Anna, which is in the path of growth. It's a 90-acre project. We have 288 townhomes for rent planned for this property, meaning it's not going to be townhomes for sale. It'll be townhomes for rent, giving people kind of the next movement from leaving in a one or two bedroom apartment and they're going into a two or three bedroom townhome with an attached garage, right? With just kind of the path of, of growth for a lot of people. And this product type is actually the most demanded product in the country right now, which is the build for rent, right? Multifamily for rent is always hot, but this is the new build for rent model. So we got 288 townhomes. We've already moved the dirt. We've already received our entitlements. We've already received a huge valuation on the land by creating value by going through the entitlement phase. And now all we're doing right now is getting those construction documents done so we can start going vertical here pretty soon. Will you keep that? Pro- What's the extra strategy here? Will you keep that product in-house or will you build it and then sell it off? So that's the beauty of development if you're building more than one right? So if I'm out building my apartment complex here in, in Southern California, I have two of them that we're pursuing right now, 300 units. That's just one product project. It's one escrow. It's one mortgage. It's one refinance, right? If I'm building for rent product in townhomes, I'm building 288 townhomes. I'm either going to have a condo map or have something in the legal documents saying these are actually all individual units, part of a larger project. So my exit is multiple. I can go and build that 288 units and keep them. I can go and sell half of the lots to another developer. I build half and he builds half, right? I can go and build the first phase, refinance it, build the second phase, sell the first, keep the second, keep the third. There's multiple different options here because they're all in individual plots now, right? As long as I keep all of the units in some sort of general property management, keep everything uniform and the same, I can have multiple owners, I can have multiple exits, I can have multiple investors, there's a lot of flexibility in it now. Yeah. Will you just make that decision when the development is nearing the end or when in the project life cycle will you start making Uh, that decision? I'll make that decision whenever an opportunity comes up to make that decision, right? So maybe I am halfway through development and another opportunity comes up. I'm like, wow, that's a great opportunity. And then what I do is I sell half of my development or half of my lots and I go pick the money and go do another opportunity. Or maybe I build the whole thing and I refinance out and I take that out. Or maybe I build the whole thing and sell half and I sell it as a to another investor as an investment product. So there's all sorts of different exits on this thing, but I will not make a decision until that opportunity or that need uh, presents itself. Yeah. I had someone on the other day who said, he who controls the dirt controls the deal. And this is just a perfect example of you have multiple different exit strategies. You really do control the fate of that project. Yeah. Whenever I get into a development, I look for at least three exits from the time I get into it, from the time it's completed, or I will either break even, I will make money, or I'll make a lot of money, right? If I, I will not get into a deal if there is not an exit strategy where I break even. Gotcha. And yeah. we've been in a very choppy market over the past three years. We've had low interest rates. We've had high interest rates. We've had uh, <laughs> steady prices. We've had inflated prices. How do you de-risk a project like this with so many unknowns out there? You know, I think what it is, is being able to build something in phases, right? 
So my 300-unit apartment complex here in SoCal that's getting the redesign is three large buildings, right? I can build those in phases. Build the first one, all right? And my mortgage on that first building would be a lot lower, a lot less than if I built all three. Meaning if I'm building the first one and leasing is slow or occupancy is slow, then I'll be the second and the third one, I'm not going to go under construction until I get to a certain point, right? So having multiple buildings or multiple parcels or multiple exits is a way of reducing that risk, right? I have a industrial project here as well. One of them, I have about a handful of them right now, but I have one where I'm building four buildings on it, right? Each building will have its own parcel, right? So I can go and start building and depending on the market or the demand in the in the area I or for the product at that time, I can keep all four. I can sell two. I can refinance two and then sell the other two. Keep one, sell three. So by doing this, having them on different parcels and having different ownerships for each one, I'm able to be a lot more flexible when it comes to the market, meaning, hey, I'm going to start building these things, but the economy is a little funny right now. I'm just going to build one, right? I'm in no need to build the other three. One is as much as the market will demand right now. So I'll build one, right? And the other three, since they're separate parcels and separate buildings, I can build those in any time. But if I was building one giant million square foot warehouse, I got one option. Yeah. Build it, yep. you don't build it. You sell it or you don't sell it. You lease it, you don't lease it. You don't have all these multiple exits on it. And you mentioned earlier that you would buy the land in cash on a particular project. Are you able to almost de-risk yourself because you own the land in cash and you don't have a debt service payment on it? Or what does that look like? You know, when I buy land, I make sure, like I said, I have exits. So I got to make sure I am buying land for below market at a certain percentage rate, because if the market changes, I got to be able to exit it and break even. So if I'm trying to buy something, I'm buying something that's hard to buy or no one wants, or it's been passed over many times and I'm finding an opportunity to do something with it. But I need to buy that thing for at least a good 20 or 30% less than the market, because I'm going to take on the challenges of that property, right? So one property I have for sale right now, I was going to build. And because of the change in the market, it's gone from a great opportunity to a good opportunity. I'm like, okay, it's just a good opportunity. I'd rather sell that property or that piece of dirt, break even on it, recapture my capital and go out and go find a great opportunity, right? So even though that land value has gone down, I can still sell it and break even, even though land values have gone down recently. Yeah. And that's the developer I was talking through basically says his negotiation strategy was, listen, I can give you full price, whatever you're asking for, but I'm going to need a 12 month runway on this because I'll have to go get easements, approvals and all that sort of stuff. Or you can sell it to me now for 70% of the market value. I will now hold that risk, not you, but I need some sort of cushion there in case of market downturn. Exactly. hundred percent. Awesome. Well, I don't want to breeze over the fact that we were chatting about beforehand that you launched a new YouTube channel here yeah. recently. So could you one name the YouTube channel and then talk about the idea behind the YouTube channel? Cause I was super excited to hear about it when you were talking about it. Yeah, no, it's great. It's something that I have never seen and I keep wishing it was out there. Right. I, you know, like we all spend a lot of time on social media with it's YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or, or LinkedIn or what have you done. And it was, it is a, a format that I just haven't seen. I'm like, hey, how come this isn't out there? And this would be a great type of video to put out there because I really think there would be a demand for at least me, right? And if no one watches it, at least I'm happy with it. And what I'm doing is, and you can find it on my Instagram or through my YouTube, which is Ahmed Builds Better. 
it's pretty simple, just like my Instagram handle, Ahmed Builds Better. And what I do is I will go out to different development projects throughout Southern California and the country. And I, what I'll do is I will showcase that development project when it's pretty much just a hole in the ground, right? So it's either under construction or it's just getting started construction. How many times have you driven by and you see all this equipment or you see these big cranes or you see all this dirt being moved and you're like, oh my God, what's happening in my neighborhood? What's going on here, right? Well, I'm going to go out there and showcase that development and let you know what's going on. So I'll go out there, I'll fly my drone, I'll get the information and I, what I'll do is I'll tell you, hey, this is what's being built. This is who's building it. This is why they're building it. This is the team behind it. This is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to help the community. This is what it's going to do for the region, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm actually going to show you what that hole in the ground is going to look like and what's going to come out of it and who's doing it and why. And it's going to be pretty much a development spotlight. And they're just quick videos, three minutes max for now. And just giving you a quick overview of what's happening in your neighborhood and what's being built. I think you're going to get upset with me after this because I'm going to start sending you Nashville is a booming market right now. So I'm just going to send you like 50 different properties and be like, Hey, can you tell me what's going on this? Well, let me tell you one thing. Episode three is launching tomorrow, Tuesday, you know, mid January. I'm not sure when this podcast will come out, but I think it's episode four or five, which is Nashville. I was in Nashville in November for the annual Arate Syndicate meetup, if you're familiar with Arate or not, as there, you know, Ed and Andy and a bunch of my friends. And what I did was I'm going to come out to Nashville for this event, see all my friends, but at the same time, I'm going to look for a project to showcase on my upcoming YouTube channel. So episode either four or five is Nashville Yards. Nice. I was wondering if you were going to drop the name of the project or yeah. if I had to get you offline to uh, oh, see no. if you would yeah. tell me what it is. That, that, that is one significant project in downtown Nashville that I, when I got into town and I was counting the tower cranes, I'm like six, seven, there's like six or seven tower cranes on that project. I'm like, wow, yeah, this is going to be the one I got to showcase. So I did a quick little three minute video on that one. So that'll be episode four or five. Well, and you know, it's a massive hole in downtown that they're yeah. going to build. I mean, it will be a huge project here. I'm actually going back to Nashville in February next month. So I'll probably go and do a little update on it as well to see what has happened in the last four months. Well, like I tell anybody, no matter when the last time you visited Nashville is, it's already changed since then. So you'll see yeah. some new buildings. It's a great city. I love it. Really, really love it. Yeah. Well, I want to switch us now into our last round. We're calling this the five <laughs> toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? It's hmm. a good question. You know, I'm a big fan of business biographies. I love reading about the life and the career of business visionaries. And I think one book I haven't read recently, but one book that I was uh, that I was really a fan of was uh, Made in America, right? And I believe that's the name, Made in America, and it's all about Sam Walton, who created Walmart, right? And it talked about his starting the business and how he went through the paces of starting and opening and growing Walmart, which is pretty much the largest brick and mortar retailer in the world, right? You, Amazon's bigger, but they're strictly online. Walmart is brick and mortar. And, you know, you being from Nashville, you're close to Arkansas, the home of Walmart. And it goes and it talks about how Sam went to his competitors and how he evaluated the market and how he did things to really understand and grow his business in the right way. There are stories about how he'd go into his competitors and he would just walk the aisles and really figure out why is the soup in the back, but the candy is up front. And he would get down on his hands and knees with a tape measure and he would measure the width of the aisle. Because wow. it's like, okay, my competitor's aisles are four feet. How many aisles 
can I put into my store if I'm three and a half feet or four and a half feet or stuff like that? So he does something that I really am a fan of is breaking down anything to the smallest pieces to evaluate and understand it. People come to me and like, how are you going to build a hundred million dollar project? That's so big. That's so wild. I'm like, yeah, it is very daunting. But if you break it down to the smallest pieces, it becomes very easy to do. And that's what I liked about that book, Sam Walton, I believe made in America. Yeah. You're describing why I love business too, is because you could start moving little chess pieces around. And if I made them three feet wide, could a cart still get down it? Yes. Would people feel comfortable? Yes. Now I can add two more shelves. I just love this idea of you're playing a chess game with it. 100%. 100%. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things you do and the habits that you have every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Well, they're not good. <laughs> you know, you know, people talk about getting up at, at 5 a.m. and taking a nice bath, and that is not me, man. I wish it was. As I'm getting a little bit older in life, I am really getting dialed in on my health, right? And a lot of people are talking about biohacking and things like that. And I know that we all have an end date sooner or later, but I want to make sure that well, my end date, I'm in the best health I can be. Like I'm still functional. I'm still moving. I still feel good. You know, I don't care if I'm 105 or 85. I just want to make sure I feel good enough to be able to, you know, not be in a position where people have to take care of me 24 seven. I want to be like, okay, yeah, he lived a good life. He was healthy and he, he did his best at staying healthy. And that's something that's really important to me right now. And that's dialing in my nutrition, dialing in my supplements, dialing in my activity and my exercise and stuff like that. So that's definitely something I want to do right now. So in 10 years from now, when I'm 58, I want to feel like I'm 38 just because I'm doing things the right way. Love it. Our yeah. third one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Ooh, I'm not sure if it's a piece of advice, but it's something I've learned recently, right? And I try to you know give to other people and it's limiting beliefs. And if I was able to take a step out of my body and look at me from a third person, I think I'd be a lot further along in life than I am right now, because we have a lot of limiting beliefs in ourselves and we don't even notice it, right? So if you're able to really look at yourself objectively from a third person and really understand and evaluate yourself, you're setting yourself up for success because you're not being blinded by the moment. You're looking at yourself from the third person in an unobjective way that allows you to really evaluate and understand who you are so you can make those corrections for greatness. Have you ever read The Gap in the Gain? No, I've heard of it. By Dan Sullivan. We'll chat about it offline. It's a book sure. that constantly is reminded to for me to read and for me to review because it talks about limiting beliefs and how we can kind of overcome those. Huge. That'd be great. I look forward to that. Our fourth one is what are you most proud of in your life? That's a good question. I think it's finally growing, you know, right now, like those limiting beliefs coming off and really starting to make progress in my life in many ways, whether it's my personal relationships, my professional business or my health getting rid of those limiting beliefs and finally waking up and saying, Hey, you could be doing so much more. You could be feeling so much better. You could be making so much more of an impact versus just being a, a recipient of what society gives you. Right. So I think that's one of the greatest things is like actually finally waking up and seeing all that's available to me and all the things that I can do. Our fifth one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? A good question. You know, that would probably probably be Muhammad Ali. Okay. Why? Why? I think it was just because of the, his own self-belief in him being able to do whatever he puts his mind to and being humble about it at the same time. Him coming out saying, Hey, I am the greatest. I am the best. I am going to go all the way to the top. 
But at the same time, being so humble about it and being so open and caring to other people that it made me feel like he actually deserves that, right? So if I could sit down with him and understand his mindset behind it and understanding, hey, how do you believe and how do you understand that you're the greatest, but at the same time, being so humble and, and bringing everyone along with you and not having this greater than thou attitude, I really would love to learn how to do that because you could apply that to business, you could apply it to your personal relationships, you could apply it to your family by right? instilling, hey, you are the greatest, but we're also a team. And he also gave it all up for something he believed in, his stance against the Vietnam War, not going into the draft and getting thrown in jail, removed his title, all those sorts of things, like somebody that stood behind what he believed as well. How many, yeah. How many people, how many celebrities or athletes would do that today? Right. Right. I actually, I, I actually like there are very few celebrities that I remember when they died or when they passed or something like that, because I mean, honestly, let's be honest, I, like I don't know them. Right. I see them on TV and I see a perception of them, but I don't really know them. And sure. but I specifically remember Muhammad Ali dying and watching his funeral and the casket rolling through Louisville, maybe because it's only two and a half hours away from me. But sure. I, re I specifically remember that moment. So I don't think we've had anybody say him yet. Yeah, no, it's just like someone personal beliefs are so strong. But at the same time, he's also so humble and you want to be his best friend. It's like it's a great combination. I just love it. Yeah. Well, Med, very fantastic conversation. I always love learning about development because it's something that I don't really know a lot about. I've never done. So it's always interesting for me to learn best practices from folks like yourself. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you or follow the YouTube channel or just get in touch with more about what you do, where's the best place we could point them? The best places would be three ways, Instagram, YouTube, and on my, excuse me, my personal website that's going to be launching here pretty soon. So Instagram and YouTube, it is Ahmed Builds Better, pretty simple, A-H-M-E-D. And then my personal website, which would be Ahmed Sarafi, which is actually launching here pretty soon as well. Perfect. We're going to leave those links in the show notes. And then Ahmed, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.